0: Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to our virtual roundtable. For those who have missed previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archive at www.usafmc.org sounds to check out our other programs or to subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast. We're on both Spotify and Apple. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have a question at any time, Simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, just click the Q&A button at the bottom center of your screen, and toward the end of the call, I'll recognize you for your question. Today, National Guard troops will enter another American city following another police shooting of an unarmed black man. A hurricane has devastated the Texas-Louisiana border and the fight by this nation and indeed our entire globe against COVID-19 continues. As much of this presidential race has been, it's possible that for many outside Washington, the convention that will end this evening has seemed almost afterthought. Earlier this week, the Republican National Convention renominated President Donald, John, Donald J. Trump as its standard bearer for the November general election. Tonight, the 45th President of the United States will address the convention from the White House, which is a first, following a litany of those over the past several days, along with being the first virtual Republican convention and featuring the first sitting secretary of state to join a political convention since 1946. With the end of both nominating meetings, we're left with the same questions we addressed last week on this program. What is the convention intended to accomplish in normal times other than nominating a presidential candidate? What did Republicans hope to accomplish this year? Did it work? What do the two conventions mean for the election going forward? To help us answer those questions, we're joined by esteemed former members of Congress from the Republican Party, ably led by A.B. Stoddard, Associate Editor of Real Clear Politics. Since 1994, she's covered Congress for The Hill and ABC News, returning to The Hill in 2006 as a commentator and columnist, winning first prize from the Society of Professional Journalists before joining Real, Real Clear Politics. She's been a wonderful moderator for several FMC events before, and we thank her for her time this morning. Ms. Stoddard, the floor is yours.
1: I'm sorry, I had to unmute. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Paul. We're glad to have a terrific group today, including embassy representatives, corporate representatives, members of the media, and former members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. As Paul said, I have really enjoyed participating in FMC events um, for many, many years in person, and (coughs) I'm excited to moderate this virtual session today. We have with us today three prominent former members of Congress who are Republicans on our panel today. Congressman Bob Goodlatte uh, represented Virginia's sixth district from 1993 to 2019 and chaired both the House Ag Committee and the House Judiciary Committee while in Congress. Congressman Bill Schuster, who served Pennsylvania's ninth district from 2001 to 2019, chaired the House Transportation Committee during his time. Congressman Bob Walker, Served Pennsylvania's 16th District from 1977 to 1997 and chaired the House Science Committee. Um, I'm going to open with questions for all three of them generally about the convention. I'll ask each of them to take a shot at this and be brief because we have many other questions and many other topics to get to today. So Congressman Bob Goodlatte, I'll start with you and then we're going to go to the other two members on this. You've all been to many national conventions over the years and watched many others. Can you briefly comment on how this one compares, how well the RNC has made the case for President Trump's second term, how do you compare it to the DNC, and if it helps in September, we're a long way from November third. Will it actually factor in to uh, the decision on November third? So, Congressman Goodlatte, we'll start with you.
2: Well, Ab, thank you. Uh, it's great to be with you and uh, all of our listeners, and especially great to be with my uh, friends and former colleagues, Bill Schuster and Bob Walker. Uh, that's a long question with a lot of elements to it to answer briefly, but I'll just say. Uh, at the outset here, and I'm sure we'll get into more detail as we go along. I think this has been, uh, for the first three nights, a very uh, successful convention. I've been uh, very impressed with the wide array of speakers that we've had uh, on this issue, uh, on on a variety of issues, and uh, I think that the fact that we have covered so many different issues that are of interest to the voters uh, and I think done so in a balanced way, for example, with regard to talking about uh, criminal justice reform, but also about uh, making sure we have respect for the rule of law and talking about uh, both the, the, the merits and value of legal immigration, seeing uh, uh, several new citizens from various countries around the world, various backgrounds and ethnicities uh, sworn in as naturalized United States citizens. Uh, At the same time, we've talked about the importance of uh, uh, enforcing uh, our immigration laws and securing our borders. So this is, uh, I think, uh, a balanced convention that is uh, designed to both reach out to uh, the base of the Republican Party, people who are generally going to vote for Republican candidates, make sure they turn out but also attempting to broaden that reach uh, to some areas where Republicans haven't traditionally uh, received as many votes. So I'm encouraged by it. Will it make a difference in November? That's uh, that's to be seen. Parties generally get a small bump out of uh, their conventions. And this one, given the unique circumstances, is unlike any that I attended, uh, first of all, because I didn't attend this one and really couldn't <laughs> attend this one. So. Uh, I did attend uh, over uh, television and video to see it, and I thought they utilized the difficulty of not being able to bring people together in a number of unique ways with a number of the settings that we're using.
1: Congressman Schuster, thank you, Congressman. Goodbye. Congressman Schuster, what did you think?
2: Well,
3: well, thank you very much for having us here. And again, welcome to all those that are, that are listening in or are looking in today. Um, first and foremost, I want to say we've never had a convention like this ever before. Uh, virtual uh, convention both both parties so it's something that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty going into it how is it going to turn out and uh, and I'll just uh, pick up on what Bob said I think it uh, I think it's gone very well for the Republicans uh, utilizing the different media uh, tools they have to bring people together live virtually um, and, and I thought as, as Bob laid out uh, put forth what is looks to me is going to be the campaign plan and that is law and order security economy uh china uh whether it's economics or, or fighting the pandemic uh so I, I thought they did a very very good job and last night particularly there were some very powerful voices uh we heard from a lot of women uh on uh, on the on the, uh, giving the speeches last night and from african americans that are very strong supporters of, of donald trump uh, uh, civil rights activists that are Republicans that, that believe that what Donald Trump is doing uh, uh, with the economy, with security, is, uh, is, is very positive. So, so I think, on, on the whole, from what I saw from the Republicans, it was very positive. Uh, as, as we all know, as Bob said, uh, we'll get a little bit of a bump, but I think this is the, this is the kickoff for the campaign, and, and the game really starts now. Uh, compare it to the Democratic uh, Convention. I thought the Democratic Convention was quite dark. Uh, a lot of negativity, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, dooms, doom and gloom, um, and and they really didn't. Ha- I didn't detect a positive message. I think President or Vice President Biden at the end tried to do that, but I, I think that uh, when you when you're talking that sort of that dark gloom and do, doom and gloom, uh, that doesn't give people a, a good feel. Um, and so I know we're going to be talking about the polls, and well, I'll leave I'll leave it at that. But on off balance. The Republicans did a very good job, uh, Democrats little questionable, and it's the kickoff of the season.
1: Okay, thank you. So I've, I've been alerted that Congressman um, Walker is having some technical difficulties, so we're going to move to the next question, and we can circle back with him when he's available. Um, Congressman Goodlatte, uh, about the polling, it is slightly improving for President Trump. His numbers in battleground states are better than they are in the national spread, real clear politics we remind people to never pay attention to national polls only battleground polls uh but biden obviously is in better shape across the board with an expanded map of competitive states do you think that polling continues to hide trump support and the race is much closer or is there a ceiling to president trump's support as the polls have shown over these four years congressman goodlatte
2: Well, first of all, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, We're nearly 10 weeks from this election. So uh, polling today is simply a snapshot uh, of where we have been recently and where we may be right now. It's not going to indicate what's going to happen. I would predict that, as in many presidential elections, this race will tighten up. Uh, It may be tighter than than it shows in the polls. People have made that assertion uh, said that about, uh, the election four years ago, but I would note that some pollsters have maintained that the polling, particularly the battleground state polling was quite accurate, uh, four years ago. So it remains to be seen. Uh, and that's the whole point of, uh, not focusing on polling 10 weeks before the election. There's only one poll that counts and I'm sure both parties are going to focus on, uh, getting people to vote. Uh, as soon as it opens up in various states and then of course on election day, November 3rd.
1: And um, Congressman Schuster, uh, I this was a question for Congressman Walker. and We can s- circle back with him when he's available. But Trump was obviously an idea in 2016. He is the incumbent president. It's a different campaign. It's a different uh, perspective from the voters, though he continues to run as an outsider. Uh, he caters largely to his base when he speaks. Um, this uh, convention has showcased a, a little bit more of an outreach to a, a, to a, a more voters outside of this base. But he won the Electoral College uh, last time. Uh, can he win it again without persuading a broader group of voters like Joe Biden is trying to do? It's clear Joe Biden is not um, just trying to mobilize the base of the Democratic Party, looking for independent center-right voters and former Republicans. Do you think that the president is going to be able um, to, to, to win the Electoral College again if he doesn't in the months between in the, in the weeks between the convention and November 3rd try to broaden his message uh, to voters beyond his base?
3: Um, well, I, I think he is broadening his message. and His message, it seems to me, is going to be about how he handled the economy, which if you look at the polling data, he's, he's several points ahead of Joe Biden when asked who would handle the economy better. When you talk about security, uh, he's ahead of Joe Biden when it comes to security. Now, when it comes to coronavirus, he's behind. He's the guy that's there in charge and, and you know, with 175,000 deaths. Um, I think Americans, certainly that's top of mind. But it, what happens in the next 30 60 days is going to be incredibly important to this campaign on, on, the, uh, on, on these, the coronavirus. A virus front. If a, if a, uh, a, v- a vaccine is, is announced that's going to be coming out in 30, 60 days, that's going to be a huge impact. But I think at the end of the day, most Americans are looking at their pocketbooks and they want to be safe and secure. And what's going on in the economy is d- due to the pandemic, not due to his policies. And I think people realize that. And we've got situations around this country where there's people are looting and, and break, you know, robbing, breaking windows, uh, violent. And I think that uh, that scares Americans. That scares middle-class America uh, that we don't have a law and order candidate. You look back to the election of 1968 uh, when the Democratic Convention uh, caught fire and people were being beaten in the streets. And most Americans, and where I come from in, in rural western Pennsylvania, the Trump, uh, Trump strength there is incredible. I think across Pennsylvania, but as Pennsylvania, go, Philadelphia is really the place that you have to look. If you come out of Philadelphia, up five, 600,000 votes, it's tough to make it up across the state, but we did that uh, four years ago, and I was one who watched the polls as a sitting member of Congress, as a supporter of Trump. He was down five to seven points up until election day. Uh, there were some polls out there that had it closer, but most of them five to seven, and he ended up winning the state. Uh, and I was telling my supporters the night of the election, I don't think he can win because I just don't think he can win Pennsylvania. He won Pennsylvania and won the presidency. So, so he's an unorthodox candidate. Uh, he's an unorthodox incumbent, and the fact that
1: he's out there every day, four or five times a day, talking to the press, talking to the American people,
3: I think bodes well for him going forward.
1: Congressman Goodlatte, um, speaking of unorthodox, uh, the president and his campaign have used the White House and even military personnel for the Republican National Convention, what many legal scholars uh, have deemed a violation of the Hatch Act. Well, what you're very familiar with. While voters may not know what the Hatch Act is or appreciate this or care about such a deviation from governing norms, what do you think of their decision to do it? And should campaigning be allowed from the White House or the halls of Congress from now on?
2: Well, I'm glad that uh, finally some some news is coming out that you know the Hatch Act, which was passed in uh, 1939, uh, uh, the next year, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, accepted the Democratic nomination for president from the White House. Uh, so I think, you know, there's precedent there. Uh, it's also come out that uh, then uh, Secretary of State, I think it was uh, George Marshall, uh, in 1946, ended uh, and spoke at Democratic uh, uh, Convent, uh, I guess it was 48 spoken spoke the Democratic Convention. So uh, I don't know. I mean, a lot more research needs to be done in that, but I don't think it's inappropriate for candidates of either party and officeholders of either party to use, and, it, and I don't think it should be inappropriate, to use government facilities as a backdrop. It's something else if they're going to utilize the resources uh, of uh, the government uh, in their election. And I think that's what the the spirit of the Hatch Act is directed at. I know here in Virginia, both political parties uh, have, for as long as I've been involved in politics—that's uh, getting close to 50 years now—used uh, you know local city council chambers and have uh, used other government facilities uh, for their political meetings. Uh, so I'm not too troubled by that. Uh, he didn't use the uh, uh, the Oval Office. He used the. Uh, you know, the First Lady spoke from the Rose Garden. Uh, some of the official acts uh, that were woven into the convention were conducted earlier uh, in the day. And of course, they used Fort McHenry, uh, which is a federal government uh, historic site. Uh, but but previous presidents and previous candidates have used those kind of backdrops uh, in campaigns uh, as well. I remember the famous one of the park that... Uh, President Reagan stood in when he announced his candidacy for president with the Statue of Liberty in the background. So uh, I think uh, the Hatch Act has meaning, and it should not be taken as as an excuse to use government resources to uh, campaign for office, but allowing people, and I don't just mean presidents, but individual federal government employees uh, to uh, speak about uh, various issues and uh, to even run for office. are aspects of the Hatch Act that May need to be reviewed because I've known uh, individuals in the past who refused to run for office because they felt the Hatch Act prohibited them from doing so, and I don't think that's uh, that's the intention of that law. It certainly shouldn't be.
1: Okay. Um, the to Congressman Schuster, uh, the you talked about the coronavirus uh, response and the polling on it. Um, the RNC has portrayed the federal response as a success story. Uh, you've seen the polling, over 60%, 64%, a strong majority of Americans disapprove of the president's leadership in this crisis. How much of a role do you think that it's going to play uh, in the election? Um, if uh, do, you, do you back home, uh, are you getting good reports about schools that have opened? Will they stay open? Um, are people seeing enough testing? What is the feeling on the ground about how this plays into their decision Uh, in their approach.
3: I think it's a mixed bag, but I do think it's going to be one of the drivers, as I said earlier. If we see things positively moving down, going towards the election, I think that's helpful to the president. Um, I think uh, opening schools is something we have to do. In fact, I think uh, teachers should be classified as essential workers. Uh, My sister teaches in a school district in Altoona, Pennsylvania. She teaches second graders, and she is absolutely adamant about how we got to figure out how to get these kids back in school. Uh, these, some of these kids coming from low income families uh, where child abuse occurs, those numbers have dropped off reports of 50%, malnutrition, uh, again, those kids need to get back to school. And as my sister tells me, uh, it, from age zero to 10 are the prime years when a child learns. That's when they're really sponges. And if they miss an entire year of school, it's gonna set them back. Uh, and so we've got to figure out a way to open these schools safely. Uh, I think we can do it, uh, and but I think the people back in Central Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, again, there's debate, but
1: I think by and large they want to see the schools schools opening up, and I think it's essential we do it for these children. Right. I, I, I what I meant was that everyone is going to open schools. It's a question of whether we have um, outbreaks in half of the fifty states already. Sure. Because so it's a question of it was never about opening them; it was about whether or not they could stay right. open. Right. Um, I want to bring in Congressman Walker, though. We're really glad to have you. We have him over the phone, and we want to I, give him a chance to participate. Oh, we see you. Okay, terrific. We want I'm, I'm to, so um,
4: <laughs> I'm so sorry. I've had ter- terrific conductivity problems here.
1: Oh, you've been moonwalking as usual. It takes, it takes a long time out of your morning. Congressman yeah, Walker, well, it's yeah. A mountain on
4: the moon blocked me. A, <laughs> I
1: wanted to bring you in on the opening question, which was basically your thoughts um, as someone who's participated in so many conventions about how the RNC has been going. Have they made a good case for the president second term? Also, if you have any comparisons between last week, the DNC to the RNC, and finally, even a great convention um, two months before an election with so much happening and with so much that the president makes happen, will it be remembered? Will it be consequential in people's decision um, and how they voted? No.
4: Well, I mean, I think it's been extremely well staged. And I think that the theme of life, liberty, and opportunity uh, has been quite effective. And I think they've also been effective in uh, dispelling the false media uh, narrative that uh, Donald Trump is uh, uncaring, uh, that he's selfish, uh, that he's a racist, and so on. He's come across uh, as compassionate, patriotic, uh, uh, focused, And it's been done by people who are just average American working people rather than Hollywood types. And I think that's been very effective. And it's showing up uh, in some of the data that is being generated as as being effective. So I think this will have some carryover effect in large part because uh, I think the American people uh, are beginning to tune in uh, to uh, the fact that the Democrats did not Address the uh, law and order theme during their uh, convention. Uh, And uh, they're beginning to understand uh, that there really is a difference uh, between uh, the two candidates for president.
1: And Congressman Walker, um, and then we're going to go back to Congressman Schuster on this. Can you tell us uh, what your sense is on the ground in Pennsylvania? A key battleground state, Congressman Schuster was just talking about how surprised he was to see the president win Pennsylvania when he was behind pretty significantly in the in the final polling there. What are you hearing on the ground um, about, uh, about his support of uh, people motivated to um, get out the vote? Uh, just sort of the mechanics of it, in addition to what the issues are?
4: Well, uh, first of all, the the polls are coming together in Pennsylvania. They're showing it within the margin of error at the present time. Uh, I find on the ground uh, just kind of a quiet determination uh, by people uh, to uh, come out and support the president. Some of the pollsters are finding that people won't answer the question as to who they're for. Uh, in uh, 2016, that uh, translated into a lot of Trump votes. and I think that, the, that there are two things in Pennsylvania to beginning to happen. First of all, the Democrats have basically abandoned rural Pennsylvania with their Green New Deal, uh, and um, uh, with uh, all the talk there about uh, ending fracking. Uh, but in, again, uh, again, in the suburbs uh, is where the real battle will be in Pennsylvania. Uh, and in the suburbs, the law and order theme is beginning to play uh, in a major way, as, for instance, in Philadelphia, they watch uh, people burning police cars as a part of the uh, defund the police campaign. So uh, all of those things are uh, giving the president uh, an opportunity in Pennsylvania that I don't think it really existed a couple of months ago. And
1: Congressman Schuster. Uh, yeah,
3: Bob's uh, spot on uh, again. Bob comes from more of the, the central eastern part, I'm more the western part, but uh, there, there is a quiet, there's more, in western Pennsylvania, is more than a quiet determination. I mean, the Trump signs are out in force. Uh, people you talk to in the street, I mean, they've got their hats on, uh, they're talking to other people. So, so I believe that he's got a, a real opportunity, because if you look at Pennsylvania, he will lose the southeast, he will lose Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh, but the rest of the state is, is going to be red and it just determines just matters on what the turnout is. And I think it's going to be extremely high in those parts of the country because they're they're dedicated to making sure that Donald Trump gets uh, gets reelected. And those themes that Bob talks about, uh, I don't know the, the Southeast as well as Bob does, but I, those, when it comes to law and order and, and streets being safe, that plays into to, to soccer moms and, 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 and middle class African-Americans saying, hey, I, I don't want my streets burning. I don't want chaos in the streets. So I, I think that's a, it's, a, it's helpful for, for Donald Trump to be talking about the, the law and order candidate.
1: Uh, okay, Congressman Goodlatte, um, we have seen a huge debate about slowdowns at the Postal Service, and the president has made false claims about absentee voting versus mail-in balloting, the entire election being rigged. Uh, voters are anxious, not only about the fact that They're afraid of being infected in long lines at uh, fewer precincts, many of them have closed, in their district. Uh, They're wondering about whether or not they should vote by mail. Requests for mail-in ballots have surged everywhere. Um, What can you tell the voters about, uh, obviously intelligence officials apparently briefed members of the media yesterday to say that these this is not, there's no evidence that there's a, a foreign plot to um, to use a, a mail-in balloting uh, to interfere in the election. Um, what can you tell voters about uh, mail-in ballots uh, and how to ensure that their vote is counted?
2: Well, I just received, my wife as well, just received yesterday in the mail uh, from uh, the Republican uh, campaign, the Trump campaign, uh, an application for an absentee ballot. So I know that uh, uh, the president is gonna encourage people to vote no matter what way they need to vote. Uh, I intend to vote in person. I think it's perfectly safe to be able to do that. I think most people are gonna continue to want to do that. Uh, And whether or not they can vote by mail is gonna depend upon the state laws of the particular state in which they're voting. But I think uh, Bill Schuster is right. There's a great determination part of voters, I'm sure on both sides, but certainly uh, I see it all around uh, here in Southwest Virginia, uh, people people are gonna get out and vote uh, and they're gonna do it in the way that they think works best for them. Uh, I have no doubt that the Postal Service will be able to handle this. Uh, after all, uh, the, the, the mail to, to apply for the absentee ballot, the absentee ballot received in the mail and then mailing it back is a tiny percentage uh, of the overall mail that will be going back and forth uh, during the month of October and early November. The real issue is whether the states, particularly states that want to jump in and very aggressively convert to a mail system, uh, like some states like Oregon and Colorado have successfully done, and do it. Very quickly. That's the real danger. If they don't have the ability uh, to count these ballots rapidly, if they don't take into account that uh, even under normal circumstances, some mail doesn't come back uh, quickly, uh, then I think they're going to run into a problem in their state. And I think that's what uh, the president is concerned about. Uh, But I think that the whole issue with regard to the Postal Service is a is really a cover for another issue, and that is that there are people uh, in the Postal Administration uh, who want to get more resources uh, and are using this issue as a way to try to force the government to give them uh, more dollars, not just for this election, but to solve long-term endemic problems in the post office that aren't going to be solved just by pouring more money at it. Uh, They're going to have to restructure they put off that restructuring until after the election because it's been politicized. Uh, but I think people should be confident that uh, if they plan ahead and they're going to vote by mail and they mail in that ballot uh, well ahead of time, uh, or if they vote in person, they're going to be able to vote.
1: Thank you. Um, Congressman Walker, um, the the stock market seems to be uh, anticipating uh, continued growth Um, but the stock market is not the economy. We have major airlines warning of layoffs. Millions of Americans are facing eviction and foreclosure um, as the COVID relief money that they uh, had been living on is is running out. Congress um, has yet to act. Um, As I said, we are seeing um, some perilous openings for schools. Uh, Meanwhile, as you all have mentioned, Um, Cities are seeing spikes in crime. Some protests have turned violent. What are the issues with all of these incredibly anxiety-producing problems do you think are foremost in the voters' minds uh, as, as we head towards the election? I know many things can change, as Congressman Schuster said. Positive news about a vaccine in October could make people feel better, um, but if schools start shutting down, that will make them feel worse. What, where do you see um, the, the top issues going into the election?
4: Well, I think the uh, the COVID uh, disease uh, problem is uh, certainly uh, very much on their minds because uh, we've been in a kind of a lockdown mode for a long, long time and it's preventing them from going to work. It's, a, it's, it's creating all kinds of issues. On the other hand, most of what's involved in COVID is fear, uh, It's the fear of the unknown. And so as soon as a vaccine does appear to be on the horizon, I think that uh, particular issue uh, will begin to be resolved and people will have some confidence that uh, we can get back to uh, some degree of normalcy uh, within within weeks. Uh, that will, of course, spur the economy forward and uh, will uh, alleviate the need for, for the government to continue to feed the trough. Uh, I'm very disappointed that uh, Congress uh, has not been able to come together uh, to at least do the basic things like extend the PPP program uh, to uh, allow uh, us to get over uh, that hump. That's going to be an issue. The law and order issue is becoming uh, vastly more important in in this election. Uh, And um, I think that's going to be something that um, uh, is on the minds of people. We're not seeing the problem in the suburbs at this point, uh, but I think a lot of suburban people are looking at places like uh, Kenosha and saying, well, it's not just the big cities that are experiencing uh, uh, the problem now. Um, And beyond that, uh, I do think that there's some uh, saliency uh, in the idea that uh, this is a president who's kept his promises. You know, we've had very few people come to the, to, uh, the presidency who said, this is what I'm going to do, and then proceeded to, day after day, go down through his checklist and said, this is what I promised, this is what I'm going to do. And when Congress hasn't acted, he's tried to act as best he can through executive orders. I think, ultimately, the American people will respect the fact that uh, whatever the rough edges are of this administration, they've done what they said they were going to do.
1: Congressman Schuster, um, I'd like actually I'd like both of you, um, Goodlat as well, to, to weigh in about um, what whether Congress should act uh, just aside from from the president. Um, in, what do you foresee in, in the in in September in terms of whether or not they'll come together um, to do anything else uh, to provide relief and whether they should. We have state and local governments that could be laying off middle-class workers like firefighters and teachers and um, it it really could begin a cascade that could be very perilous.
3: Well, I I was hoping that Congress would act before uh, they they left and, of course, uh, these conventions has probably uh, pushed it off, but I believe they will act, they have to act, and and as you mentioned, A.B., uh, the airline industry is going to lay off 50,000 people. Uh, come January, or excuse me, September 31st, and then across the co- country, if this PPP program isn't put back in place, you are going to see job losses. Uh, I think there'll be a deal. Um, I think the difference is is that the President and the Republicans in the Senate wanted to focus on those items that were absolutely necessary to respond to the pandemic economically. Uh, the Democrats on the other side have a whole wish list. A wish list of things they wanted to put in there that they know this is an opportunity. Tries this is an opportunity to try to jam it in there, and it, and it has little or nothing to do uh, with the pandemic. So I think they're somewhere in the middle there. Uh, I think they'll come back in September, and the pressure has got has to be enormous on leadership uh, on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Capitol, to say we've got to do something. And I, I think it will happen again after they get back in, in September.
1: Okay, before we get to Congressman Goodlatte, I just want to remind everyone in the audience that if you have a question, um, you can, for any of the members, you can post it in the Q&A channel, and Paul um, will be able to call on them when we get to questions. So, Congressman Goodlatte, what do you think about the negotiations and whether or not we'll see a deal soon in Congress?
2: Well, the federal government's fiscal year uh, ends September 30th, and then that new year is not yet funded. So the entire federal government needs to be addressed through some kind of funding. It might be a continuing resolution for uh, a few months, but it would not at all surprise me uh, if in doing that, they also take some of these other considerations uh, that uh, particular sectors of the economy uh, that need to be addressed are addressed. However, I hope that they do this uh, with a scalpel and not with uh, some kind of a broad Based approach because we are now seeing uh, all over the country, we're seeing it right here in South Virginia. Employers who have, are having a hard time getting workers back to work because they were paid more money in some instances uh, through the, the very generous payments that were made earlier in the year uh, than they were working, or not enough less that it was worth them to say, Well, you know, I actually have, have to work for only a small additional amount of money. So we need to take that into account as we do this funding to make sure uh, that uh, businesses are taking the measures necessary to keep workers safe, but also workers are going back to work because that's what's going to grow our economy, create more jobs, and get us back to uh, the so-called new normal as quickly as possible and not just pouring money at this
1: Okay, I have a question um, about, a political question again, I thought I would uh, throw back to Congressman Walker. Uh, what did you think about the pick of Kamala Harris as a president, a, a Vice President Biden's um, VP nominee pick? And how much do you think that um, traditionally, uh, VP picks have played into people's decisions? And this year, is everything different now? I mean, we, you know, we have two very defined candidates, but it's a crazy time. A lot of the traditional political metrics have sort of gone out the window. Um, what do you think about whether or not that pick is going to end up being consequential for, uh, for Joe Biden?
4: Well, I think it was the safe pick for him uh, internally in the Democratic Party. He had to do something to uh, prove to the um, aggressive wing of their party. Uh, that uh, he was with them, uh, and so he picked the person uh, that had the uh, most liberal voting record in the Congress last year, uh, so uh, from that standpoint, it was a safe pick. Uh, I don't think that it, it will necessarily be consequential. Uh, he picked someone from a state where he's going to win uh, if, um, uh, if, <laughs> if the whole thing collapses, uh, he will still win uh, California. Uh, and so he doesn't um, uh, get uh, much there. Uh, and um, in all honesty, she didn't prove to be a very good campaigner when she was running for president. Uh, and so um, uh, the question exists as to whether or not she strengthens the ticket in terms of being out and about. Um, uh, clearly, they the campaigners decided they don't want um, Vice President Biden to be out and about. She may be the face of the party moving around the country, uh, and um, at least in the primary season, that wasn't very successful.
1: And uh, Congressman Goodlatte, one of the things I've been surprised by is, um, is how much the president leaned into immigration in 2016 and then leaned into it again in 2018 uh, when the midterm elections were coming up and him talking about the caravan and the wall and border security. We've, as you touched on before, seen um, a presentation, a naturalization ceremony touching on the issue of legal immigration, which the president has really tried to cut, um, but sharing him there you know, with uh, new citizens, and it was you know, as feel-good as it gets. Um, why do you think, the last time I was with you, um, which was now several years ago, we were talking about this issue, you've been a leader on this issue, why do you think the convention so far has really kind of not talked a lot about border security in the world?
2: I think one of the things that the president and uh, his team have uh, discovered part of uh, being in the White House and governing is that while their approach to this has always been uh, a balanced one, uh, he certainly in his campaign emphasized border security and the wall, he has never been anti-immigration, but he's been portrayed that way uh, in the news media. And so I think they have been cautious to make sure that as they talk about uh, the security issue and, uh, and uh, they will continue to talk about that without a doubt, uh, it's also important that uh, they talk about the fact that as long as people are going through the process legally, uh, they should uh, be able to come into the United States. That's been uh, the Republican position. We came very close to passing... Uh, a bill that wasn't comprehensive immigration reform, but addressed all three areas, enforcement, addressing people who are not lawfully present in the country, what their status can be, and legal immigration reform, which is so badly needed uh, in in so many sectors of our society. So he wants to do that. I think they recognize a They may have missed an opportunity, and he wants to uh, have people understand that he wants to address that in a balanced fashion. The other aspect of this, of course, is that because of the pandemic, there have been both a health and economic reason for slowing down the number of people who are allowed into the United States, and he's done that. So it is not as much of a hot-button issue uh, as it has been uh, in the past, but he continues to support... Uh, securing the border. The, the border wall in places where it's needed has uh, been under construction. I think they, they said yesterday on the committee that 200 miles of it had been built. So uh, that's still an issue, but I don't think uh, they want to play it quite the way they have in the past. Uh, they want to show that this is a nation of immigrants and they respect that, but it's also a nation of laws and there's a balance that's needed there.
1: Congressman Schuster, as you know so well, the issue of health care had Democrats on the defense in 2010, 2012, when President Obama was reelected, but the Democratic congressional candidates and Senate candidates could not talk about it. 2014, another huge midterm slaughter for the Democrats, and 2016. In 2018, they went on offense on this issue, and Republicans have been on defense ever since. The president's now, you know, at court, you know in a lawsuit that backing a lawsuit that will be reviewed by the supreme court after the election but would dismantle um could potentially dismantle the rest of the affordable care act after the individual mandate was killed Um, this is a vulnerability for republicans we're in the middle of a deadly pandemic what is your sense of this issue people who've lost their employee-based coverage because they've lost their job etc what is your sense of this issue in Pennsylvania among voters in the Trump coalition who wanted a deeper safety net, who didn't want to see entitlement reform of Medicare and Social Security and are worried about their the stability of their care going forward?
3: Well, it's obviously an issue uh, and the Democrats picking up on it in 2018 and with the pandemic coming, it's, it's, it's highlighted it even more. And I've, I come from a district where it's a, a high, high population of, of seniors and so there is concern out there about this. Uh, I do think, though, that the Trump supporters are, are not giving him a pass, but are saying they're, they're willing to watch and see how this how this plays out. Because he's as he has done and he's continued to do is talk about replacing uh, Obamacare or parts of it that are, have not worked uh, with something that is better. Uh, so, again, it is an issue. It's it's one of those issues that's uh, towards the top. Uh, but uh, I think those Trump supporters are, are going to stay strong with him. I think it's in places like in the Philadelphia suburbs, uh, where you're going to ha- that's going to have a greater impact. In and, and places like that around the country, there's the suburban areas uh, uh, that uh, have high uh, percentage of, of seniors living in there. So it's, it's going to have an effect.
1: Okay, um, Paul, I want to offer the audience a chance to come in with questions if they have some.
0: Sure, absolutely. And again, if you have any questions for our panel today, please move to the bottom of your Zoom screen and click the Q&A button, and we'll be able to take your questions live on audio only. Our first question today comes, from, AB comes from Fernando Prieto of the Embassy of Spain, and Fernando has some, uh, a question about some of the folks who haven't appeared at the convention. Fernando, if you can go ahead and unmute your microphone and ask your question to our audience.
4: Thank you, Paul, and thank you, everyone. My question is about the absence of some important Republicans. Of course, uh, no one, I think, expected to see Senator Romney appear in the convention. But other Republicans that support President Trump, like Governor of Florida DeSantis or Governor of Texas Abbott, or Senator Lindsey Graham or Senator Ted Cruz, have not been in in the convention, uh, and, and there have been a lot of interventions in the. Convention. Can you comment on that?
1: Congressman Walker, do you want to talk about that? It's sort of interesting to see who got chosen. Senator Cotton gets a spot, but not Senator Josh Hawley, who would obviously like to have had one.
4: Well, uh, having uh, been a part of uh, planning convention in the past, uh, I know that there is always uh, the the real battle over uh, who gets on and. who doesn't, and how much time they get. Uh, and uh, it is always uh, the, one of the uh, tough things. The fact that these conventions had to be put together on the fly, I think the main elements of it were that, uh, that here's the theme that we want to get across. Here are the people who work most closely with the, uh, with the president. We don't want to have only politicians and um, uh Hollywood personalities and that we want to bring in uh, people who have actually been impacted by what the president has done and allow them to have a place. Well, that means that you can't get on uh, virtually everybody that uh, would probably like to speak. So um, uh, I think it's just a, a function of you have uh, limited time and uh, limited numbers of uh, speaking slots and um, you know they did the best they could.
2: Maybe if I might uh to add that uh, Bob's exactly right. But I think it's also very deliberate. Uh, the president ran uh, when he wasn't president uh, for change and reform and, and fighting the status quo in Washington. And I think he's going to do that again. And I think that uh, he wants to say two things. He wants to say, I've been effective. And here are people who are here to, to talk about how I have helped their lives. But he also wants to show those people because that's his real audience uh, that he's trying to reach uh, average Americans who want to know what his next act will be if he if he's uh, reelected and I think we'll hear a lot about that tonight that's going to be uh, critical for him if he's going to be successful to to outline why he deserves a second term
3: if I, I could just add to that uh yeah. just building what Bob said uh, earlier he's also showcasing different faces, uh, younger members of Congress, uh, African-Americans, uh, women, to show the people, to show America that it's not just a bunch of white guys running everything. And here we got three older white guys on this, this call, but, but I think it's a smart thing to do. Uh, again, showcase the, uh, uh, the African-American former NFL player on last night he was very powerful. Uh, the gentleman who was a uh, civil rights leader in the 60s uh, on and saying he's a Republican. I think that demonstrates to the American people, and this cuts through all the media out there, the reports are that you know, he's, he's bad with African-Americans, he's bad with women, he's bad with this, he's bad. And these are people, real life people, not Hollywood stars, as both had said, but real people talking about why they support president Trump and what he's done to
1: affect their lives. Well, to the questioner, I just do think it's interesting that Senator Rand Paul still got a slot and there's a lot of competition among people who are allies of the president, as Bob Walker points out, and it was the same with the Democratic Convention. Whether or not you get a slot and how long your speaking time is, because a huge competitive battle, um, many, many people want to be involved and uh, many want to be showcased. um, And so the selections are always very interesting. Um, Paul, do we have
2: another? Yeah. Let me, let me just add to that too. You're absolutely right, A.B. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of ruffled feathers afterwards. Uh, and it's even worse in a convention like this where they, where all these people can't go and hang out with everybody else. So right, and influence them. Convention, what they get seen on a, a television screen or somebody's uh, laptop. So that's uh, uh, that's a problem. But I think both parties had it. Exactly. They always do.
0: Paul, do we have another one? We do, actually. Uh, FMC CEO Pete Weichlein is uh, joining us this morning and has a question about down ballot races. Pete, go ahead and unmute your microphone, and you can ask your question now. Sure. Um, first of all, good morning, AB. Good morning. Hi, Pete. James. Thank you all for joining us and giving us your time and expertise. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to expand ever so slightly on the question that was just asked about uh, featured speakers. Uh, other than Joni Ernst, I don't think I've seen vulnerable Republicans um, really featured at the convention. Um, for example, Susan Collins uh, would love your insight as to um, whether Republicans who are in a real race are staying away. Um, and also how you're seeing uh, the Senate and the House unfolding on November 3rd.
2: Well, if I may, uh, I think what you're seeing again, you saw a Maine lobsterman, but you didn't see uh, Susan Collins, uh, but the Maine lobsterman may help Susan Collins and the president uh, more than anybody else in terms of the president's effort. And clearly he's going to make an effort to try to carry Maine uh, in this election. And uh, that's, I think, uh, the political calculation that everybody, makes. are they going to gain votes or lose votes by participating in Uh, in their party's convention. I don't know whether that was a calculus here or not, but I know that uh, it certainly was a calculation for me and a lot of my colleagues whenever we considered, uh, you know, how we were going to run our campaign. Were we going to run it separate or were we going to run it uh, as a part of a team? Were you going to run with the governor or run with a candidate for senator or were you going to run your own campaign? It just varies from election to election, candidate to candidate, state to state.
4: And I don't think that uh, for most people who are running in tight races that it makes much of a difference of whether or not they spoke at the convention or not. Uh, the fact is that they're making their own case in their own states uh, and uh, what they want out of the convention uh, is an assurance that the convention has been used to broaden the base off which they can get votes uh, in, in the election. So uh, I, I don't think that it's, that's a big deal one way or the other.
3: And to add to the two Bobs, the, the, again, the political calculation comes down to, does the president help me or doesn't he help me? And I think that's, that's what they do. And there's probably three different types of congressional House races out there. The same the Senate is some are wrapping their arms around the president, some are keeping them at an arm's length a bit, and some are keeping them a, more of an arm's length away. This all depends on what the uh, situation is in the state or in their district, and, and they're playing it politically as they see, see best.
1: Connickson Walker, what do you think, um, the president should do to wrap up tonight? First of all, I want to offer prayers to everyone in the path of this devastating storm. It's a really, really frightening situation in the Gulf that's taking place today that the, the effects of it, the reports of, of people in harm's way, the president is going to close up this convention tonight. Um, and, uh, obviously hit a bunch of themes. What do you think is, is he should focus on uh, in his speech tonight?
4: Well, uh, clearly uh, there uh, is a need to broaden uh, the electorate uh, that votes for the president beyond the base. And so um, uh, a lot of the appeal of this convention has been uh, to broadening that base. And I think that those themes have played pretty well. And so uh, I have to believe that what they've done is they've done a buildup uh, to uh, things that the president is going to say tonight about the future, and I have no doubt that they will uh, have a little bit of focus, at least on, uh, on what's happening in Louisiana and Texas right now. Uh, clearly, uh, the administration has already acted. Uh, I saw uh, Acting Secretary Wolf uh, down there uh, uh, this morning. Uh, so the administration is already acting there, and I think that they'll put some emphasis on that. But um, uh, one of the things that I've noticed throughout all of this is that there has been uh, certainly an appeal to uh, Catholic voters, there's been an appeal to uh, the potentially uh, dealing with the black vote. And what you have to remember is that all you have to do is move a few percentage points in some of these um, uh, swing states, uh, and, and you have uh, created uh, an electoral victory for the, for the president. Uh, and so I think what he has done so far in this convention has moved in that direction and that he'll uh, strengthen that uh, with uh, what he personally does tonight.
1: And Congressman Schuster, what, what do you think he should, um, what themes should he hit uh, in this final chance he has before sure. if we go back to whatever virtual campaigning and tweets <laughs> um, will consume the remaining days. Uh, I, I agree with Bob
3: uh, in the fact that they have hit during these last three days all the major points uh, and let's face it Donald Trump came somewhat out of show business and any great show any great concert it, it leads up to the crescendo, it leads up to the final act. Indeed. And I think tonight you know, he has to give a speech that reaches out uh, to talk to some of those people that, that are on the fence uh, he has to try to get them to come around so this is going to be Donald, Sp- Don- Donald Trump's uh, most important speech of his life, probably uh, tonight, as he leads into the as it leads into the campaign. I just want to say one thing about campaigning is he has said he's going to go around the country, airports and maybe diners, uh, and I think that's going to be a huge contrast to what I hear uh, Joe Biden is doing. And he's not doing any public appearances, and he's got doctors and people in his team saying, "Oh, that's fine because of the pandemic." Well, you know, I think a lot of Americans look around, and I think a lot of them are upset with members of Congress. Have n't gone back to Congress when the truck drivers and the, the nurses and the people at the grocery store they're there day in and day out. They're wearing their masks, doing what they have to do. And I think that this is going to be a definite the uh, difference that Trump is going to be out there, and it appears Biden won't be.
1: Uh, Congressman Goodlatte, I, I I thought that Vice President Pence's speech last night was very serviceable, but. Um, not exciting, and maybe that was intentional, as Congressman Schuster said tonight. Is the crescendo, and President Trump is giving the speech of his life. What do you recommend that he do?
2: The vice president or the president? Well, the vice no, the president. The <laughs> vice president's done. Yeah. Okay, well, the vice president did take up the tough issues, like uh, he addressed the pandemic in a in a very strong and serious way, which is a tough issue for Republicans, as as Bill has noted earlier. Uh, the president <laughs> needs to outline what he is going to do for the American people uh, in a second four-year term, uh, if they provide that to him. Uh, He has a lot of uh, initiatives underway right now. I'm sure he'll talk about many of those things related to the economy, related to energy independence, related to uh, making sure uh, that we have respect for the rule of law in our country, but also talking about things like criminal justice reform in uh, other areas where he can reach out uh, and expand his base, I think he'll continue the theme that's been going for the first three nights. But Bill's right. this is a very, very important speech for him because it is his opening bid on why he should be given another four years.
1: So um, Paul, I think we do we have one last question before we close?
2: We do. Brian Graf from one of our
0: fine uh, business advisory council members at Tochu has a question. About the platform for uh, for this convention, Brian, go ahead and unmute your microphone, and you can ask your question. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. Just really quick, uh, you know, generally speaking, the platform, pardon me, the, uh, the convention is used as an opportunity to uh, produce a platform, and the Republican Party of the Trump campaign decided not to do that this year, uh, or at least not in the form it usually comes in. They've just they've just published some bullet points. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why. That decision was made, and, and what sort of impact that might have for Trump. I'll go first. Well, uh, I,
3: I I think that uh, I think the platform is a is a good exercise, uh, but I don't think at the end of the day, when this campaign's over and he's president again, uh, or even the Democratic Party, if they do a platform, they are going to stray from that platform a lot. And so uh, I don't think it's a bad thing that they uh, haven't done it. They put out bullet points. They put out their principles. Uh, again, I'm one that's uh, – and I fought many times uh, to, to eliminate things on the Republican platform that I thought would help the party, uh, but it was something that always had been there, and so they always kept it. And so you, you lose on battles like that. So, again, I'm, I don't have any uh, concerns about there not being a platform. I don't think anybody in America knows they don't have a platform.
4: Yeah, I, I would say that uh... – Uh, In uh, some of the cases where I participated on the platform committee, uh, uh, making the decisions about what goes into the platform becomes more divisive than helpful. Uh, And uh, to some extent, I think the Democrats found that this year uh, and uh, ended up having to adopt a very uh, progressive oriented uh, platform that's now causing them problems as people are taking items out of that platform and transferring them to um, uh, the Vice President Biden. uh, I, I guess is that the Trump people just decided to that. Now
2: this, this year with a virtual convention and people not being able to meet and, and, and it being more difficult for people to collaborate, uh, there may be both political and practical reasons not to do it. And like Bill, I don't have any problem with it.
1: That is all the time that we have today. We're at 10 o'clock. On behalf of the Association of Former Members of Congress and Congressional Study Groups, I want to relay a huge thanks to our congressmen, our panelists, and to all of the audience members who joined us today. We appreciate it.